Are you ready to make positive transformation happen for you? Today, you're going to hear how some of the most successful people in the world have made it happen. Hello, and welcome to Transformational Energy Leadership with Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey. These successful people and Dr. Woolsey will share advice, insights, tips, and tricks designed to help you incite personal action. It's time to bring positive transformational leadership to your life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey. Welcome to Transformational Energy Leadership. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey, coming to you live from the heartland of America. And for some of those listeners out there, you might call it the good life and you know who you are. Now, before we get started, just a quick reminder, during the commercial breaks, you can go to my website, that's transformationalenergyleadership.com, where you can learn more about me and my business, and I welcome communication. So feel free to email me at mwolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. You can also find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and voiceamerica.com under the Empowerment Channel. Now, today is a live show, so for the listeners out there, feel free if you've got a comment or a question to contribute. We welcome that. Now, my guest today is Mark Crowley, who is a recognized or is recognized as a path cutter in the workplace management, engagement, and culture. In fact, Forbes magazine calls his ideas visionary and the blueprint for the future of workplace leadership. Mark's best-selling book is called, no wait for it, it's called Lead from the Heart, transformational leadership for the 21st century. Welcome to the show, Mark. It's great to have you here. Thank you. You know, Mark, when I saw your book, in fact, when I read it cover to cover, I learned more and learned more about you. I was, I was really compelled because you talk and write about so much that I believe sets exceptional leaders apart from all the others. Tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote this book. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very big question, but I'll, I'll start by saying that I spent, you know, probably close to 25 years in um, the dog-eat-dog world of financial services. And so through the course of my career, I found that um, I really managed people. I was an outlier compared to how other people in my organizations were managing people. And uh, I, I really got extraordinary performance out of people. And I didn't really question why I was an outlier or even notice it until probably a good 15 years in my career when people that were working for me for a long period of time started to say, you know, you realize you work in very different ways. You approach leadership very differently. And I always just got incredible results and never really looked at what my neighbors were doing. And as I started to see how they were approaching driving performance, uh, it became very clear to me that I was doing something very different. And I think the, the, the connection that I made at that point, which was completely oblivious to me for probably, literally, probably the first 20 years of my career, Matthew, was that my upbringing and how I was raised, um, I'll just say it this way, that after my mom died when I was nine, my father raised me and he was a, a psychologically abusive very destructive influence uh, on my life, my self-esteem, my, my well-being. He really um, sort of approached parenting in a very crippling way. 
and then he kicked me out of college, you know, kicked me out of high school, or excuse me, kicked me out of the house right after high school. A couple of days after I graduated from high school, he just said, it's time for you to go. No money, no emotional support. Never, never really saw him again until a couple of days before he died 15 years later. So really disruptive, um, very, very difficult upbringing. And I think what happened was to marry those two things is that, uh, I began to realize that what I had done was to make an unconscious decision to give people who work for me everything that I'd always wanted and needed growing up and always believed that if I had been given this, that I would have been infinitely more successful. So that was making people feel safe, which seems crazy, but I never felt safe from the moment they kicked me out of the house. I always felt vulnerable, always felt that there was a moment of a car breaking down or not having enough money for rent where I wasn't going to be able to go to school and it was going to be game over, and that is an oppressive, limiting energy. And on top of that was making people understand that I wanted their best success to come out, and then I would identify their potential, and that I would teach them everything that I knew. I would coach them. I'd maximize the potential and encourage them and, and recognize them and make them feel appreciated. And so, of course, people responded in profound ways to this, and I just thought, well, this is what everybody's doing. And uh, so when I, when I started to realize that I was managing people differently and that I was having this incredible effect in getting people to scale mountains for me. I spent probably the next six or seven years really refining this and understanding it and testing it and really perfecting these practices that were bringing the best out in people and getting me lauded as a great leader because I was always getting, you know, getting great performance. And uh, then the organization that I was working for failed And I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to use this year to write a book and articulate these practices. And in the process, I'll just leave it here, um, I started to realize that what I had been doing all along through the course of my career was affecting people in their hearts. And because that is such a taboo in business and historically been seen as such a weak um, uh, management approach, I spent almost a year and a half going and looking for evidence to support my thesis that by connecting with the hearts and people that we are infinitely, profoundly greater uh, in, in our effectiveness as leaders and managers. And uh, so that's what ended up becoming the book, a very different book than I started out writing. I have to say, I really appreciate your transparency about your childhood and your upbringing. And I like the way that you anchor many of the lessons and the different perspectives that you share in your book throughout the course of your book and not overdoing it, but just saying, here's where that comes from and how it spin things around for you to give heart and give love to the people around you. And when I want to pick up from your last part there, when you said, when you did that year long journey, when you were looking for evidence, tell us more about the research that you uncovered about heart. Um, well, specifically about the heart is, is sort of the most amazing part of the book as far as I'm concerned because it, it literally gave me permission to call the book Lead from the Heart. So I knew in business the world that I was coming from that if people heard the word Lead from Heart, so here I leave my organization, I'm gone for two years, my book comes out, people that I used to work with hear the title Lead from the Heart, I knew they were going to go, what happened to that guy? You know, like, we haven't seen him in two years. Like, why is he using that? What, what, you know, did he have a spiritual transformation or a breakdown? I mean, you know, like, we just are so resistant to this idea. 
And I had a, I was literally I was working, sitting right where I am right now, I was working, I had a conversation with a guy that I used to work with who was following my, my path in writing this book and knew of my upbringing. And, and uh, I hope I can say this on the air, but he said to me, he goes, have you thought that you, you know you need to explain this? You need to give people an understanding of why these practices work. Because if you don't, people, you know, they're just going to assume you needed a really shitty childhood in order to lead this way. And I hadn't given it any thought at all, at all. And it was such a stunning insight that I had, you know, I really hadn't thought that through. I just thought people were going to take me at my word. So that's when I had the, the epiphany that I had been leading people from the heart all the time and affecting the hearts in people. And so in that process of looking for support, um, and I think ultimately, Matthew, what happened was that I realized, I know I'm right. I have the experience of managing this way. I just, there just has to be something out there. So I, I met with um, an, a world-class cardiologist, and I wrote her a letter, and I told her what my thesis was, and here's how I've been, here, uh, here, this is how I've been affecting people through these practices. And really what I'm wondering is through your medical knowledge and experience as a cardiologist and a cardiosurgeon, is there any evidence to support me? And so I went and met with her. She didn't even get up out of her chair. She was sitting in this very messy office, very I mean, top of her class, NYU Medical School, very accomplished person. And she looked at me and she said, Mr. Crowley, you have figured out something we're just figuring out in, in medical science. Matt, I didn't know what she was going to say to me at that point, but I had tears in my eyes because I just knew my whole life experience was about to be validated. And she said, for 300 years, we believed that the human heart was just a pump. 300 years ago, they opened up man's chest and they saw the bump, a bump, a bump, and they said, well, there's the pump. They couldn't see any evidence and they had no technology to detect anything greater than the pump. And so they decreed that the mind is where all of our cognitive ability is. And she said, and now we're, of course, finding out that that wasn't, that's really not true. Uh, that uh, starting in the late 70s and then much more recently, they've discovered that the heart has its own mini brain, that it influences our, our, not only our thoughts, but our decisions, our actions, our choices, and that the heart and the mind are in constant communication with one another. Um, so that the heart and mind are sending information back and forth, but the heart actually sending more information to the mind. And so the, the key piece of information here is that when people are getting the experience of positive emotions through all the kinds of things that I've described to you, the making people safe, making people feel like they're growing and supported and, and, and have trust with their boss and feel secure in that and feel that they're making a meaningful contribution and they're appreciated, that I'm giving people, those practices give people this steady diet of positive emotions. And when that occurs, it creates what's called coherence between that communication between the heart and the mind, which ends up putting people into their optimal level of performance. So we optimize people by caring about them. We optimize people by supporting them. We optimize people, you know, for all intents and purposes, by loving them. And I'll explain that if you'd like. Well, what I love about all of this is that in the, all of our 
the ancients, you know, the going centuries back, it doesn't matter the religion or the the philosophy, whatever it is, there there is always heart there, and and how you preserve that and respect it and embrace it, and now we're getting to the this point where science is saying yes, there is something there based off of what you just said, and now we're reversing the whole course of that thinking, and that's what I love about what you posit or what you put in the book is that this is something real. Well, I mean, you make a really, really great point, and, uh, and I'm not entirely sure when this started happening, but probably by the 19th century, we got to a point where um, we said, you know, so, you know, we've always said things like follow your heart, trust your heart, have a change of heart, learn it by heart. You think about those expressions and what they mean, and they all imply some cognitive ability. To, you know, to have a change of heart literally means he thought this over and changed his mind, mm. right? So right. why would we say those things? And that's true in, in universally. It's true in all languages and has been for millennia. It's not something that, you know, just popped up. And so, you know, all spiritual traditions have always taught that the heart was really your connection to your higher self and, and spirit, if you believe in that. But at the end of the day, that the heart was much more than a pump. And yet science came in and said, if you can't prove it, it ain't true. And so this is the, uh, you know, this Dr. Mimi Ganeri is the woman that I met with. She's written two books. As I mentioned, she was uh, she graduated top of her class at NYU, and she told me that when she was going through medical school, that they were they told her that when you're working on a heart, even if it's a cadaver, even if it's a cadaver, um, don't you know, or even if it's alive, but really, you know, don't don't get caught up in this heart being anything more than like a carburetor. So you're just like a mechanic going in there and fixing this thing. And then she said, you know, what happened to me, and I think why she was so interested in meeting with me was that she said, you know, through the course of my, my career as, as a cardiologist, I'm meeting people, and they've got heart problems. They've got very serious heart problems that either need stents or, you know, or surgery or, in, in some cases, replacement. And she said, and I started to make this deep connection between the fact that there was something wrong in their lives meaning they, were, they either had an addiction or they were in a bad marriage or they had significant financial problems that were creating stress. And she said that their, their biography was changing their biology. And she said, Mark, you can't, that can't be if it's just a pump. If, if our emotions, if our life experience is affecting the heart in that way, then it's got to be much more. And that led her to her search and to her introducing me to this organization called the uh, Institute for Heart Math. And they, one of the co-founders, they've been around for 30 years, they're studying the intelligence of the heart. And one of the co-founders chose to mentor me so that, you know, I could, I could effectively articulate what the science of the heart is and what they know about it today. Isn't that interesting to look at the heart as singular when we as beings are a whole ecosystem ourselves? And what I hear you saying is the heart is very much at the core of our essence of our being and ultimately our energy. And I want to come back to the energy piece because we're at a break now as time flies by. So what we'll do is for the listening audience, feel free to go to my website, transformationalenergyleadership.com and or call in in the next segment if you've got a question about this this heart energy and this, this whole heart memory that we're talking about with Mark. So stay tuned. We'll be back here in two minutes. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration that opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss Being Here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time with award-winning authors Ariel and Shia Kane, right here on the Empowerment Channel. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are with host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned in to Transformational Energy Leadership. To reach Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey or his guest today, you are welcome to call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, send it to mwoolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Mark Crowley, the best-selling author of Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. Now, in the first segment, we were talking about what motivated Mark to write this book and also some discoveries in his research, and particularly around how the heart is not just a beating pump, but rather... It's so much more than that. And Mark, before we, we left off talking a little bit about energy, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about energy, because I firmly believe we all have it as positive or negative, and when we meet someone, we can detect it, and there's something there. Well, I agree with that. Um, Do you want to dig a little bit deeper into that so that I know where you want to go? Yes, let's go for it. So tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking, because um, I have my own thoughts about energy, um, but w- what, what specifically would you like to go down and talk about? Well, what I'm thinking about is every, and particularly when I'm, I'm thinking about this from a leader's point of view, that leaders, when they walk in the room, and I think even your book gave different examples of, there can be a leader who is all about me, 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 even though they may not say it, but their energy is all inward, it's towards them instead of 
being outward and being positive where it really motivates and incites others, very much using the words that you said earlier. And that's what I'm thinking. And there's, a, there's some power there. Well, you know, it's interesting because they have done these studies that shows that the heart is a bit of a bullshit detector, interestingly enough. Um, I agree with that. that <laughs> the heart can really pick up, um, you know, have you ever walked into a room where there was just an argument? You know, you don't see any signs of the argument, but you know something just happened there. Um, that's a form of intuition that, that um, the Heart Math Institute, Institute of Heart Math is determined to be very much related to the heart. There's this sense of sensitivity that we have. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, I just had an interesting conversation with um, a guy named Marshall Goldsmith, who's a world-class um, executive coach. And I spent just a very few minutes of time with him and I, I, he's, he's someone who has spent an enormous amount of time with, um, you know, executives and, and helping them become better. But in just a course of about 15 minutes of talking to him, he gave me some feedback about me that just stunned me. It was like, how could you possibly know to give me that kind of feedback after just 15 minutes? And I think we acquire this. Um, through time, but I also think it's built in. In other words, we have it, we don't know we have it, or we don't rely and trust on it, but it's an instinct and an intuition where we can pick up on what people are feeling, how people are thinking about certain situations. So you, you as a leader, for example, will make a decision and you send it out and you communicate the decision and you know that there's going to be some disruption, but then when you see people, you can actually feel into what are they thinking? How, is this resp- how are they responding? So you're picking up on cues, but you're also picking up on this energy that you're talking about. And, you know, I, I think that science is, has now determined that at the end of the day, we are all pure energy. And we are sending out energy through our thoughts and through our, our intentions. And uh, people are being able to pick up on those. And so, you know, there's something about that person that just doesn't feel right. That's where that expression came from because we can't detect it with normal senses, but there's something about that person we don't like, or there's something about that person that's really great, it, we're picking up on that energy. Which is so critical for leaders, being, being sensitive to that aspect of the human nature, and that's really what the premise of your book is. This is a whole section. It is, and section. it's so interesting because we've taught managers, particularly men, to steer clear of all of this. It's all about numbers. It's all about results. You know, we don't really think about the human aspect. And so I think at the end of the day, what I've been trying to do through my work is to say, if you look at it from what humans need, um, and we have, you know, if you go back 100 years ago, we didn't care about any of that. We paid people to do a job, and we told them that if they didn't do a good enough job, we'd replace them. And that worked well for businesses because they controlled everything. But now we're at a point now, particularly today, where the markets are, are kind of turned in the favor of employees. Well, people have choices as to where they work, and they want to work in a place where there's somebody that cares about them, that someone that sees them as a human being, sees them as unique, accepts them for who they are, and tries to maximize their talents. And, and we just haven't made the shift yet. We still continue to tran- you know, transfer this old line of thinking, which is take it or leave it. And, um, you know, we, we talked before the show, I have a millennial son, 
And he told me right after he graduated from one of the best colleges in the country, um, I said, what do you want to do? And he says, I just sure as hell don't want your career. And that sounds like a very brutal kind of a mean thing. But what he was saying was, I saw what you went through. I saw the experience of climbing the ladder and having people above you step on it. And um, the, just the, the brutal work hours and the, the lack of appreciation and his whole generation has said, we're not going to put up with this. And across the world, in the last couple of months, there have been more people who have quit their jobs than ever in the last 30 years. And you look at that and you say, oh, is it all for money? I don't think so. It's because people are saying, I can't work in an environment where I'm not nurtured, where I'm not given what I need in order to thrive. We spend too much of our lives at work and and this generation is going to be the one that's going to force the change along the lines of what I'm recommending. And that old frame or that old posture of the transactional leader that you alluded to before, you do this and I reward you with pay, simply doesn't work anymore. And we really need to move into that transformational space as leaders to embrace the millennials and just life going forward. And and knowing that, let's let's go into your model. You've got four pillars or four dimensions of of leadership practices that you highlight in your book. Let's let's go to the first one. You start out by saying hire people with heart, build a highly engaged team. Talk more about that. Well, I think you know it's interesting so so often I think managers think that they're in control of the hiring decision. It's kind of an arrogant point of view really when you think about it. It's like, well, I have the job, so I get to pick, and I'm going to be king or queen here, and I'm going to interview people, and I'm going to pick the best person. And, and to some extent, I mean, that's, that's the power that we have when we're hiring, right? But um, what it ignores is that just because somebody seems like the right person to you doesn't mean you are the right person for them. And that's the big gap. So we hire people and we think, oh, this person's going to be great. And then we're wondering why they're not assimilating and working well with the team, performing well, whatever, you know, full engagement. You can just sort of detect that it's not, it hasn't worked out. And you, you say, well, boy, they look great on paper. It's because we didn't explain how we do things to them. We didn't give them an opportunity to understand our culture and how things get done. We were so quick to say they're going to be good and I need to get this job fit. You know, my boss is on me to, you know, find a replacement for the person that just left. And so I'm just going to make this decision. And so what I'm saying is you need to find somebody for every job who not only has the talent to do it, but the heart to do it. Is this what they want to do? Do they like this kind of work? You need to find out if they've ever done something like this. Does this get you excited? Tell me about what this work does. Why does it make you excited to do it? What is it about this particularly? Because there's a million different things we can all do. And I think one of the deep sources of misery for people is they're doing work that they don't enjoy. And if you don't enjoy it and you're doing it eight hours a day, it's going to wear on you after a while and you're going to get miserable. And so one of the things that I did, Matthew, is that um, before I would make a, make a decision on hiring, I did two things. One was I had my final candidates interviewed by three-star performers, people who were already excelling in that particular role, who I had you know, taught how to interview and work with you know, to coach them on how, what to look for, and basically brought them in and let them make a final decision. So I would put three people in front of them, hiring one, and say, tell me which person to pick. 
And I was always in the room, and I'd say two-thirds of the time they picked somebody other than the one that I would have picked. And I gave them permission, and the reason I gave them permission was because they already knew what it took. They knew what personalities worked. They knew the kind of person that would succeed in our environment, and they were almost always right. And that was astonishing to me. The other part of it was that I would let the candidate um, spend a few hours going and meeting people that were already in their job so that they could have a cup of coffee and say, what do you like about working here? Tell me about, you know, work, working for Mark. You know, what, what would it be like working for him? What are his expectations? And I, I didn't have too many people, honestly, opt out. But what that does is it opens up this trust because then people know exactly what to expect. They know how they're being evaluated. They know how, how the team works. They know my personality, good and bad. And when they start to work there, they've already made the decision that this is where they want to be. And so if you're trying to limit engagement, you're trying to limit turnover and elevate engagement, the more you open the kimono, the better off you're going to be. And I, I love so many things what you're saying there. It's not just you as the leader, but it's bring bring the team in because ultimately the team's the one who's going to have to work with that person. And there's something you also said in your book, and I remember it was about when you're hiring, you still listen to your heart when you're making those decisions. Consult your intuition. And that's very, very powerful. Then the second area, so the first one was hire people with heart. The next dimension is heart to heart connect on a personal level. This area I'm, I really want to explore with you, so go for it. Tell us, what's the, what, do, what do we need to know about this? One of the great taboos, Matthew, in business is, you know, we, we sort of say, leave your troubles at the door. Um, you know, we don't really need to know too much about you. Just do your work and, and kind of go home. Now, there, there's been a blend of this. So some, some people listening might go, well, that's not exactly true. But that has been the model. So, and a lot of managers, this, this your audience will relate to, there are a lot of managers that really don't want to know about your life. They don't really care about you that much. They don't want to engage in it because it, people are messy. It's time-consuming. It distracts from people from getting their work done, you know, the managers getting what they need done. So, they, it's all sort of superficial. And what I'm saying is, is that that's patently wrong that what we need to do, and I'm not really recommending going, having them over for Sunday night dinner or going out for drinks for the, with them. I'm saying have meetings with them that are dedicated to learning about them, dedicated to learning about what their aspirations are, what they want to learn, where they want to grow in their careers, so that you can tailor a program, if you will, for helping them achieve them. This is one of the big responsibilities of leadership is helping people become what they want to become. Some people say, you know, I want to do this job for the rest of my life. That's fine. But they still want to grow. They still want to learn. So how can we help you learn even if you want to stay in this role? Some people want to be CEO. So that's a totally different role, a totally different path, helping people get there. This is the, and then there's also, you know, the human aspect of this is, you know, finding out if people are willing to disclose it. What's going on in your life? What's going on? Do you have family? Um, you know, you might find out that there's, they've been in a divorce or they've got an elderly parent or they have an extremely long commute. And if you can do anything to demonstrate to people that you can make any kinds of accommodations to help those people, 
um, come in a little bit early, come in a bit late, you know, so you can avoid a commute or um, give people permission to check in on their parents if they've got an elderly care, you know, some some accommodation. And we think we're so quick to say, oh, they're going to harm productivity if we do that. That's, that's going to, you know, really set us back if we do that. And I find that the more generous you are, the more people commit. We reciprocate as human beings. When people are kind to us, we're kind back. When people are like bosses are generous and thoughtful in that way, all we want to do is prove to them how grateful we are and how much we appreciate what they, what they did for us. And so we give back. Productivity never suffers. So you have to know your people, and I fundamentally believe if you don't know people's story, you can't manage them. Heart to heart. And you, right. And even with the skeptics out there, people, those those tough employees that we have who, why are you asking me this? It eventually wins them over. Here we're at a commercial break. When we come back, I want to, we'll, we'll continue this conversation about your, your leadership framework. We'll be back in two minutes after this break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you left the cage that held you back but find yourself in the wild of your life wondering, what do I do now? I'm Dr. Lisa Cooney, and today I'm going to give you the tools to answer that question. Regardless of the issue, your choices of the past no longer need to haunt you. You have the power to change that and to create from a space of fun and ease. How different can your life be? Find out. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, noon Central, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Do we really have a full understanding as to why we do certain things and function the way that we do? There are many different aspects of trauma, and you can learn more about them and how to overcome the symptoms by tuning in to Trauma Talk with host Ezrina Rose Scott. On Trauma Talk, Ezrina and her special guest experts and clients will discuss the different results of trauma and some effective methods in resolving and healing from them. Listen live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Transformational Energy Leadership. To reach Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey or his guest today, you are welcome to call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, send it to mwoolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
We're back, and today I'm joined by Mark Crowley, the best-selling author of Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. Now, Mark, before the break, we were talking about the four dimensions of your leadership processes. So we got to the first and the second. The first one being empower the heart, maximize employee potential. The second was inspire the heart, value and honor achievement. Or no, those are your next two that we're going to talk about. I messed that up. Your first one was hire people with heart. Then your second one was heart-to-heart, connect on a personal level. And what I appreciate in your book is you have a process of connecting with people on a personal level. And you hit you hit most all of them. Ask what people, what their dreams are, what inspires them, where do they want to go in their career. But there was one piece that we didn't get to and I want to do because I think it's so important. And that is you tell people, you tell leaders, ask for feedback. Why is that so important to you? Well, I, I think it's, it's some big reasons. One is my, my mantra is know thyself um, because I think the more you know about your strengths and weaknesses, the more secure in yourself you become as a leader. And I think, I think a lot of managers are very threatened. They're threatened by other people. They're threatened by their own insecurities. And, um, you know, not to get too off the path here, but, you know, there's lots of evidence here that the stuff that pops into our mind is, is really not within our control. So we're influenced by fear. So we get into threatening situations with people and we act out. And so I've, I really truly believe that we need to work on ourselves and, and develop and cultivate a, a very deep understanding of who we are, how we got where we are, what what we need to work on and how people see us. And so one of the exercises that I used to do with people who worked for me was I'd, I'd, I'd set it up like this. I go, Matthew, you know, we've worked together for a long time. Can, can you tell me one thing that you think that I do really well? And they go, oh, Mark, you're, you're just fantastic. You know, you're the best leader I've ever had. And, oh, you know, the list is so long. I go, well, thank you so very much, but just give me one. So they give you one, and then you go, oh, that's wonderful. I really appreciate it. And then you wait a second. You go, well, now that you've given me one thing that I do really well, give me something that I need to work on. Oh, Mark, you're the best. You know, you don't really need anything. You know, you're really, really terrific. I go, no, you know, I gave you, you gave me one thing that I, that I do well, and I really appreciate it. Just give me one thing that I need to work on. And then they stab you. <laughs> Just kidding. But they give you something that's painful to hear. Um, and you realize that they've been thinking about this for a really long time. They were just reluctant to give it to you. And so if you accumulate this list, you start to realize that you might be a bad listener or you might be perceived as rude and unkind or um, in your own world or completely distracted. You know, you, every time you're in a meeting, you're pulling out your phone, what, what have you. You never appreciate me, um, whatever. Um, we, we all have these blind spots. And I remember another exercise that uh, your listeners might find really cool and useful. Um, We had a team of people all together, and we would say, okay, so everybody take two pieces of paper and write two things about Matthew that we think is admirable, you know, really terrific, the best quality that we find in Matthew. And so all of those then would be passed on to you, and then you would read them. And I would say, Matthew is kind, Matthew is thoughtful, Matthew is generous, Matthew is really great with his people, you know, all of those kinds of things. And then the exercise would say, okay, now write one thing that Matthew needs to know that could make him better. 
And because you've been given two pieces of really positive information from everyone, the idea is that you can stomach the one thing. And for me personally, I was absolutely dismayed. And I guess the thing is to realize we're all human. We all have limitations. So everybody's, you're never going to get, oh, we can't write anything down because Matthew or Mark are so perfect, right? So in my case, what people said was that um, I use sarcasm. And sarcasm is not a, not a good thing because it hurts people. And I think that sarcasm was something that I grew up with. It was one of the tools that my own father used to kind of ridicule other people. And I think I adopted that. And so um, having it called out and realizing that at some point the very people that I'm trying to be supportive of are feeling like I'm cutting them down through sarcasm, that was something that I needed to go to work on. And so I did. So I don't know very many people who would call me a sarcastic person today, and it's because I got the feedback, I took it to heart, and I made the changes. And that's exactly what you need to do as leaders. When you, you take it, you humbly take it, and you work on it, and you demonstrate it. And then, of course, that's what builds more trust. What, what do you want to call that? The emotional bank fills up, and the trust really escalates. In your third dimension, it's called Empower the Heart, Maximize Employee Potential. And let's, let's go into that. Talk more about all that. This is really, you know, making an investment in people. And uh, one of the, it's interesting because one of the, 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 the key findings from Gallup's, you know, 30-year study on engagement is that one of the greatest drivers is the perception that people have that they're growing. And so what we tend to do, you know, I'm, all the organizations I've ever worked for, I've always been the beneficiary of being seen as high talent. And so I was the beneficiary of all these great investments in coaching and, you know, classes and you name it, all these great opportunities. But the decision was, we're not going to do that for everyone. We're just going to do it for a small group of people. And that is the worst thing you can possibly do. Because even if you think somebody is a B player, and they're never going to be, you know, a senior leader or something. Um, the way to keep them happy and to keep them feeling fulfilled and thriving as a human being is to know that they're growing. And so everybody's at a different level, everybody's at a different pace, but this attitude that we're only going to invest in people who we think have the greatest potential limits the majority of people, and that shuts them down because if you feel like you're not growing and you're just doing the same thing over and over, then um, you're just going to feel, you know, like, why? Why, why should I, you know, you just sort of, it just sort of kills your spirit, if you will. And so I made a huge decision years ago that I was going to invest in my people. So not only was I willing to teach them, if I read a book, I would spend a Sunday and type up the notes and then send them out to all my people so that they didn't have to read the book, but they got the information. We would read books. I would bring my managers together and I would buy them books and then we would spend time talking about them. And each manager would take a chapter and present and talk about what they learned. And um, when I saw this massive change in behavior, you know, anytime you improve one discipline in life, you would automatically enhance all other disciplines. So when people were reading books on leadership and it was changing their perspective, you started to notice that they were dressing differently, carrying themselves differently, acting more professionally, wanting to read more, wanting to cultivate more. And, you know, none of my peers were doing this because the attitude is produce, 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 produce. Um, my belief is the more you invest in people, the more you're going to get out of people. 
And, uh, and you know, the other thing is that now I'm, I have been managing people now for six or seven years in the process of, you know, leaving and writing the book. And I have a lot of people in my life who still stay in contact with me, who tell me what a difference I made in their life and how I, you know, changed them in some really wonderful way. And uh, I think that's probably the most satisfying thing that you can get out of leadership. You know, beyond the paycheck is to know that people care about you and respect you and are fond of you and have fond memories of working for you. And we all have more memories, unfortunately, of people who are just the opposite, where we couldn't wait to get away from them or they did harm to us or they exploited us in some way. And um, I don't think that's the best way to get, you know, productivity out of people. I simply don't. No, and you talk about there's, there's the the heart piece there, and there's also that gift of time. And boy, there's nothing more valuable when your leader says, "I'm going to give some of my time to you to help you get better." What a huge message that sounds. And I just got a I got a question, a writing question from someone who's listening to the show. Her name is Lene S, and she says, "Why can it be so hard for us to lead from the heart, even when we intuitively know it's a good thing to do?" That's a fantastic question, and Lene is a friend of mine, and I will say this, that, you know, we have these ideas about business that are so um, out of time, out of, out of uh, disconnected from what we know now. There's so much, you know, we talked earlier about having the difference between faith and science, and now science is emerging to confirm all of this, and what we haven't done is to sort of go back to managers and say, hey, we got to clean the slate here because everything we believe to be true about managing people, you know, pay them as little as possible, squeeze as much out of them as possible. This is the way you get the productivity of squeeze people. Um, We haven't gone back and inculcated um, the mass understanding of how to lead people. But what's happening is, I think, you know, where this is. So I will say this. I've taken a lot of punches. It has been a very, this has not been an easy road for me. I had a woman who I paid a lot of money to tell me, if you ever use the word lead from the heart, you will fail. And while I haven't failed, what I will tell you has been a very difficult struggle um, because we have this instinctive response that whoever would say lead from the heart doesn't get business. They don't understand the world that, you know, that we're in here. They've never managed in a real world setting. You just don't lead with heart. Um, So what I'm saying is challenging the whole philosophy of how we've traditionally managed, but what's going to happen here is that this generation, the good news is I truthfully used to believe, when I first started with this, I thought, well, all I need to do is convince the CEOs and then they will change their culture. And what I realized, unfortunately, is, is that old dogs probably don't learn new tricks um, most of them don't. And so if you've been successful for 20-year career and I come in and say, you know, this is here's a more effective way, you're going to say, well, why would I want to change when I've already been effective? We resist change so much as human beings anyway. If you're feeling good about yourself and thinking you've done a great job as a manager, you're probably not going to change. Um, and change takes time and investment, and if you're not convinced that it's necessary, you're just going to let things go, and this is why engagement hasn't gotten any better, because the people at the top of so many organizations have just failed to really embrace this. But what I finally realized, my another great insight that came, unfortunately, through time and through patience, is that 
leaders aren't going to change because they see the need. They're going to have to change because the people they're managing coming up from below them are demanding it. And I'm a baby boomer, and baby boomers sucked it up. We took whatever came our way. This is the way we work. Okay, this is the way we work. You want to micromanage people? Then I'll do what you want me to do. You, you, whatever you 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 ask of me, we're gonna we're gonna suck it up. I'm not gonna quit. I'm gonna stay. The millennial generation and the generation that's coming behind it, Gen Z, they have seen the destructiveness. They've seen the harm, the stress that their parents had. And as we alluded to earlier, they're saying, I want greater flexibility. I want meaning. I want purpose. I want a boss who cares about me. I want a coach. I want somebody who, who respects me and sees me and knows me and wants the best for me, is an advocate for me. And if they can't find it, if they look around the horizon and they see people that are managing in the old traditional ways, you know, we already know this. Millennials won't stick until they find it. They are willing to get up and leave. And this is a big, big difference. So it's a bottom-up forcing it to change. It's happening. There's simply no question it's happening. It's just not happening anywhere near as fast as I'd like it or Lene would like it. (laughs) And thanks for the question, Lene. What I hear you saying is this this demand that's coming from coming, you know, from this generation and moving forward is really they're asking for a different skill set, a different mindset, and I would say even a different heart set from Thank the you. leaders. You're, I mean, this this is what you just said encapsulizes my foundational belief, which is the people that we put into many management roles shouldn't be there going forward. And it's or they're gonna have to make a massive shift in how they approach it. But we have in many cases, pick people who don't really care about other people, who don't care about the success and well-being of other people. It's principally about their recognition, their growth, their career, their you know how they're seen, and uh, they're threatened by the success of other people. And what we're really looking for are generous, giving people. You need to have that. So I think about it. The best model that I can give you is if you think about any coach in athletics, professional, college, high school, whatever. They're not like, you know, when, when the, you're down seven to nothing and you need a touchdown to tie the game with a minute left. They're not like, I'm going into the game, right? They're not right. competing with their players. They're bringing the team together and saying, you can do this, and here's our strategy, and this is what we're going to do. And, you know, they're, they're trying to bring out the best in the players, not trying to compete with the very people that they're supposed to be responsible for managing. That's the model that we need. Absolutely. Say, Mark, we've also got a caller, Sherry, calling in from Los Angeles. Let's go ahead and take her call. Sherry, are you there? Uh, Yeah, good morning. Good morning. So thank you so much, Mark, for what you're saying. Um, It's tapping into a philosophy that I've always believed in, uh, but yet uh, couldn't articulate it quite the same way that you are. Um, So I'm just really, really enjoying everything that I'm hearing all of the examples. Um, I have a question about those folks who are motivated by um, competition, by pressure, um, because I love what you said about uh, the impact and how we can optimize people by being positive. Um, but there, I know that there are some people who say, no, give me a really hard task or give me you know, something that I can be driven by, give me some pressure, give me some competitiveness. And sometimes um, I think that that's where the, uh, the 
the, the emphasis on, you know, that we have historically seen the emphasis on uh, driving people so hard. So what do you say to the person who really believes that, no, this is the way that you see results um, because there's so many people that competitiveness brings out the best in them? Well, I mean, we are a competitive species. We we like competition, but, you know, what, what I have found, Sherry, is that, and the, the truth is that human beings as a species didn't survive by competing with one another. Um, we survived by supporting one another. And mm. so, you know, if you needed something, I gave it to you. If I needed something, you gave it to me. We looked out for each other. And we now know that there's just tremendous evidence that collaborative work environments. Um, you know, Microsoft was a perfect example. For many years, they had a model where uh, out of 10 people that, you know, for all intents and purposes, two of them could be judged as superior um, six or seven could be judged as average, and um, the bottom one or two would be fired. Um, and so what it created was a culture where people held back information, tried to undermine one another because there were so few people who could win. And so what I believe is that you want to do is to, as leaders is to create environments where everybody could win. This was my, my thesis with managing many managers. At one point, I was a regional manager. of I had 30 different bank managers working for me. And so I found ways to demonstrate to them that you can succeed. Your competition is how much you can possibly do that's better than what you're already doing. But you're going to do that in an environment where you're collaborating with people doing the very thing that you're doing so that you can learn from them so that you can pick up ideas that are succeeding and ideas that aren't succeeding and accelerate your effectiveness. And so we built this really tight, cohesive team that way. I think that's what I advocate for. And so if you want somebody who, if you have somebody the way you're describing saying, uh, you know, I really want to compete, then let's set a goal from where you are today to something bigger and let you compete against that versus compete against somebody else that you're working with. I truly, Mm -hmm. truly believe that the best leaders know that it's teamwork. And if you look at, by the way, if you look at, um, I'll give you a perfect example, Villanova, just men's basketball team, um, they have this whole culture of it's all about everyone else. It's all about everybody. And two years ago, they won the national championship this year, but two years ago they had like 10 seconds to score a basket or they were going to lose the national championship. And this one guy, Archie Diacono, Ryan Archie Diacono, dribbles the ball all the way up to the line, and he's the best shooter on the team. And right as he's about to take the shot, he hands it off to somebody else and lets that guy take the shot. And he, he thought he had a better shot. And that mm-hmm. is brilliant in my mind. By the way, he made it and they won the national championship. But that um, I'm not going to be selfish in the moment mentality is, is real brilliance to me. So have them compete against themselves rather than other people. I'm going to jump in here. Sherry, thanks so much for the, the question. We're, we're right up at the end of the, the time here. So I appreciate the call in. And, and Mark, just give me your, your 
one-minute overview of your fourth dimension, and that is inspire the heart, value, and honor honor achievement. You've got a minute. <laughs> okay, so it, I'll just say it this way, that um, people, one of the chief complaints from people all over the world is they feel deeply, deeply unappreciated, and we know that recognition is important. Every manager knows it's important. We just fail to execute it. And so one thing I would say as I leave here with everyone is that you cannot over-appreciate people. You cannot thank them so much that they stop working. People need to know that you appreciate them. They need to know how much time and energy they're putting into work. They need to know that the work is meaningful. And if you aren't thanking them for it and reminding them of how much it matters, um, they're going to wither. Their spirits are going to wither. And there's a quote that you have in that section, and it says, quote, here's what I have come to realize. Long after you remember the actual work or the targets you met along the way, what's sustained in your memory is the effect you had on people's lives. By this one measure, above all others, you'll know the true impact you had as a leader. And that really resonated with me. Thank you, Matthew. Absolutely. And and, and it's very much is like, I think it was... Oh, shoot, I can't remember right now. But there's a, a, a phrase or a quote that says, people will not remember what they said, they won't remember what you did, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Maya Angelou. Thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Why is it when you're on the moment and things evaporate, she's the one? And when I saw your quote there too, it's so much about that feeling, it's that heart to heart. Mark, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate you coming on the show today, sharing your insights and what you've learned over the course of your research and your life and what you've been doing. So thanks so much. I'm honored, and uh, thanks to Sherry and Lene for making it even more fun with their real live questions. That's really fun. It does, doesn't it? Thank you. Here's a preview for all the listeners out there. Next week, I'm joined by Sean Anderson. He's a six-time motivational author and inspiring keynote speaker and a results-producing people builder. He, His go-the-extra-mile philosophy and ability to produce winning results has been praised by leaders and media outlets from around the world. Guaranteed, you're going to learn stuff about motivation, self-help, and other things that will help you as a leader. So next time, until next time, if you have a topic, a someone that you think would be add some great texture to our conversation on the show, please let me know. You can email me at mwolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com or go to my website. Until next time, harness your positive energy and lead transformation. Talk with you next week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Transformational Energy Leadership. Please join Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey again for another edition next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week.